OVS Orbit, a podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This is episode number 69. This episode is a talk that I delivered at the Dogstuhl Seminar for Programmable Data Planes in Dogstuhl, Germany, in April 2019. It's about why Open vSwitch doesn't yet have user configurable protocol support, or alternatively, why OVS doesn't support P4. On to the talk. It's going to be a, a fairly informal talk. Uh, when I was first preparing this, uh, I had thought that it would be uh, useful to, uh, to actually present uh, how, how to add support for a, a protocol to OVS. And I, I got most of the way through writing that up before I figured out uh, after I, I got here that it was just a little too uh, technical and uh, code intensive uh, for, uh, for, for, for something here. Uh, also, uh, one of the things I've learned uh, when, I, when I write that kind of tutorial over and over again is that uh, when you understand something re really well and then you try to write a tutorial about it, you learn that it's actually a lot harder than you thought uh, when, you, when you try to explain uh, all, the, all the deep details. So I think what's actually going to come out of that is um, I'm going to first modify OVS to make some of this stuff a lot easier because it doesn't have to be that hard. Uh, and then I'll write up that tutorial. <laughs> I, I, did that, uh, I did that for uh, OpenStack integration with OVS, and uh, I think everybody uh, kind of uh, appreciated the, <laughs> the way that it got a lot easier. So uh, this talk kind of has two titles. Uh, one is uh, User Configurable Protocol Support for OVS, and sort of the subtitle is uh, Why Doesn't OVS Support P4? Uh, uh, because uh, if if uh, OVS did support P4, then uh, the rest of the talk would be about one sentence long. It would be uh, yes. here's here's where you uh, you insert the P4 code to add support for your protocol. Um, there's a work from Princeton, Jen Rexford, Picasso. Uh, the the Pisces work. Pisces, yeah. I think yeah. One of the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I feel like I was. Uh, Almost uh, like a, a co-advisor to uh, the, the student who, who did that work, um, and uh, that that's actually one of the things I want to talk about a little bit. Um, so, uh, yeah, why doesn't Pisces count? Why isn't that uh, um, why isn't that P4 support for OVS? Well, it might be. Um, if if you're doing research work, it might be great. Um, it uh, has a few limitations. Uh, so one of those is that it's DPDK only. Um, so if you want to use any of the other uh, OVS interfaces, like uh, the, the Linux kernel interface um, or the Hyper-V support, then uh, you're, you're out of luck. Um, I, I think it might compile, uh, but it's, it's not going to give you the extensible protocols. Um, the, the second thing is that it, it's never been forward ported uh, beyond the version of OVS that we used for that. I don't remember anymore what version exactly that was, but it, at this point it's uh, several versions old. Uh, probably it could be forward ported. I don't know whether uh, it would be worth it. Um, and then finally, and this is the real reason that it hasn't been integrated in uh, sort of OVS mainstream, uh, it, it's because it broke compatibility with a lot of the features that uh, OVS users expect. Uh, backward compatibility is something that we uh, really value highly. 
uh, in the OVS project. Um, if we started breaking backward compatibility, then I think we'd probably lose a lot of feature or lose a lot of users uh, because they they expect to be able to upgrade and have stuff still work. And um, if they upgrade and stuff doesn't, they have to go around modifying things. I I, I think that would lose us a, a lot of our audience. Um, and either they'd go away and do something else, um, or they'd uh, uh, stick with an older OVS. And uh, is I, that fundamental? Is there a way to forward port it without breaking backward compatibility? That is kind of the the key question. Uh, doing it right uh, would be a lot of work. Um, and I'm actually really in favor of, of doing that work. I, I would like to do that work. Uh, I've had trouble getting, uh, getting support from, uh, from management at, at VMware to get them enthusiastic about uh, P4 in, in OVS. So I, I guess the, the reason there is that it, it's seen as, as something that would uh, primarily uh, benefit other users. Um, that and VMware isn't against um, benefiting uh, other other users of OVS, but if, if you kind of look at uh, how things are are set up there, uh, they've got a team of I don't know eight or eight or ten people who work on OVS, and so if they need a particular feature, they they ask one of us uh, to implement it, and the additional benefit of investing a couple of people for probably a year, 18 months, in making it easier to add new features uh, doesn't, uh, so far I haven't been able to get them uh, excited about that. And that's not to say it'll, it'll never happen, but they're, they're kind of focused on other things. I guess the main answer, the main question is more philosophical and I don't want to be yeah. I guess P4 was a language that was created for, by software people to try to build hardware or just to, you know, because they don't want to deal with Verilog and stuff like that. So if you're doing like something in software, I, I'm not completely sure you really want to do before like in software. Why? I've, if I can switch. I really like uh, P4. No, so I'm not saying it's bad, but you know. <laughs> so the, the I don't think it's just to avoid Verilog. That may be one of the reasons. So I think P4 is fairly hardware focused, but uh, when when you look at it, or when I look at it, I only see a couple of things that are notably hard in software and easy in hardware. Um, one of those things is checksums. Uh, it, it has this, uh, this idea that um, on ingress, if you care about checksums, you check them. And on egress, if you care about checksums, you, uh, you, you generate them. Uh, and, and that's generally going to be expensive in, in software. I, I, I tried to uh, convince them to add some checksum features that would be um, a little easier for pass-through, uh, so that uh, um, uh, so that uh, instead of uh, checking on ingress and generating on egress, um, instead you did uh, um, incremental updates, so that at the very least, um, even if you didn't check them, then if they were wrong when they came in, they're, they're wrong when they go out. Uh, but, uh, and, and you can definitely do that, but it, it's not sort of part of the, the standard, standard library the, the last time I checked. Um, and then there's a, a couple of other things that seem harder in software, but I, 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 I don't remember what they are offhand. The, the first part of my message is that I, I think that it's, it's too hard to add support for new protocols, and I think users 
should be able to do that uh, fairly easily. And uh, currently, it's 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 really hard. Uh, it's it's hard for me in some cases. And if it's hard for me, I'm sure it's hard for everyone else uh, who, uh, who who comes to it. Uh, right now, uh, the best we do is uh, we uh, we have some functionality in there so that. Uh, it, it more or less calls out the places you need to modify so that if you if you start adding something you'll start getting build assertions in, in most of the places where you have to add code or, or modify code uh, which helps I guess why I why I like a, a p4 it, it's uh, because of my own personal experiences with uh, with with openflow so um, at at Nasira when we started out designing openflow we designed it for very much a, a fixed match over basically IPv4 and related fields. And, and we knew from day one that that wasn't good enough. Um, uh, I mean, not, not to mention the existing protocols like IPv6 that we couldn't handle, but it, it seemed pretty obvious that people would want to add, add their own. And uh, over, over a couple of years, uh, I sort of, in my spare time, I. I started uh, tinkering with ideas for um, how do you how do you write a, a language for specifying uh, what protocols a switch supports, and it seemed like there were sort of uh, two uh, two possibilities that that kept coming up, and and yet neither one of them seemed very good. Uh, one was basically based on uh, fixed offsets. Uh, and people kept suggesting this. I, I think maybe, maybe even Nick McEwen suggested this at one point. And I, I just kept pointing out that fixed offsets are, are not going to work very well because offsets change uh, from uh, from from one packet to another. And then the the other the other end of the spectrum uh, was uh, that uh, somebody just provides a program uh, in some general purpose language that extracts the headers or the fields that you want. And that also seems pretty unsatisfying uh, because it, it's really hard to to take a general purpose program and uh, and and look at it in, in terms of some of its emergent properties. Uh, you, you can't you can't do much with it other than uh, other than run it. Uh, and I, I tried to come up with some languages that sort of fit in between. And uh, I, I and then when. I first saw the one of the drafts of the P4 specification. I looked at it and said, "I wish I'd written this." <laughs> so, it, it seems to me like it, it strikes a, a really good uh, balance there. For for OpenV switch and for other software switches, it, it seems to me that uh, the the user configurable uh, protocol support is is the the main reason to support P4. Uh, one of the one of the neat things about P4.16 is that uh, you can specify. It, it's very sort of component and module based. You can specify uh, that something has a parser, or that it has two parsers, or that it has uh, a tables, or it doesn't have tables, and so on. And what I ev what I eventually concluded was that uh, if uh, if we wanted to support P416, it, it might make a lot of sense for OVS in a in a P4 model to just have a parser, because that's the uh, um, th that's that's the part that's the the most important. Uh, the the P4 table model it seems like it models hardware really well. It doesn't seem quite as useful for software because in software there's no particular reason we need to specify in advance um, exactly the set of tables and their restrictions. Um, 
and uh, actually the, the bit that seems the most restrictive to me is that in P4 you have to spe specify in, in detail what actions a particular table can have. Um, if, if you want it to be able to, uh, uh, to, to, do, uh, to do A or B, then you have to say that. Um, and if you also want it to be able to do A and B, uh, you, you have to list that uh, separately as well. Uh, and uh, there's, there's just no reason to restrict things in OVS uh, in that same way. Uh, so I, I, I still feel like uh, for software switches, uh, OpenFlow has, has some advantages uh, when it comes to actions. So the, the main thing I want to talk, to, uh, talk about here, though, is uh, why is it hard to add P4 support uh, uh, to OVS? Or alternatively, why is it hard to, uh, to make the, the protocols uh, configurable? And uh, the answer there, uh, the, the, the big part of the answer boils down to the, the interface that we, we baked in uh, between uh, the two parts of OVS. So the OVS has, has two major parts. It has a slow path uh, that runs in user space uh, that, that runs in the process called OVS vSwitchD. And then it has, ha it has a data path. And whereas there's just one slow path, there's many data paths. So there's the one that runs in the Linux kernel. There's uh, the, the one that, that runs in user space that, that people often call the DPDK data path although you can use any drivers. It doesn't have to be DPDK, DPDK's drivers. Uh, there's uh, the one uh, that, that runs in, uh, in Hyper-V. And uh, I, I've been told that there's a number of proprietary data paths for, uh, for different hardware switches and, and, and probably things that people have hacked up for research. Yeah, uh, there's a, a company called Cloudbase that uh, wrote a Hyper-V data path uh, for Windows and contributed it to us, and that uh, that's in the OVS tree, and uh, uh, we uh, we still get updates uh, from from them and from other people on it, and uh, so you can run uh, uh, VMs in Hyper-V. Uh, they they even demonstrated how you can run Kubernetes on Hyper-V with uh, um, with OVS. So uh, yeah, to to me that that's one of the the real uh, victories of OVS as an open source project that. That the people just show up with uh, with cool stuff like uh, let, like let's make OVS run on a, a different operating system. Uh, I'm I'm really happy about that. We have um, OVS running within. I have a project kind of old now called the SuperCon. It allows you to start an instance in Azure and migrate the instance to um, Amazon and migrate it to Google, migrate to VMware. Uh, I think I said Azure already, but Hyper-V. So one of the things that we use is open vSwitch. Oh. Within that, so we have to have, especially on blanket drivers, but okay. Does it uh, does it manage to keep network connections up as you migrate across all these, or what's wow? Yeah, you essentially have your own um, your own private infrastructure as a service cloud that spans all the other clouds. That's a neat project. What was was there a paper about that? I, I don't think I've yeah. come across it. Series of papers. The initial paper was Zen Blanket. That was in the US in 2012. Okay. But then there's a journal paper and a supposing crown paper. I should. I should look that up sometime. Uh, I I'm I'm always amazed by um, if I go to something like Google Scholar and type in Open vSwitch in quotes, <laughs> the, the astounding number of citations. I, I always, if I'm uh, if I'm feeling uh, uh, feeling crappy about something, then that's <laughs> a good way to feel a little bit better. 
let's see. Oh, yeah, so uh, there's, there's, there's one user space and, and multiple data paths, and there's a, a fairly fixed uh, um, interface uh, between them. And, and that's where uh, sort of the, the difficulty in, uh, in, in adding protocols and in, in making it easier lies. Uh, because um, you, you can think of the, the Linux kernel module for OBS in particular is almost like a software ASIC. And when I, I say an ASIC, I don't mean a flexible one like Tofino. I, I, I mean, mean something that only uh, supports certain protocols. So if, if you look at this interface, uh, there's, uh, there's a, a set of, of fields and protocols where, uh, that, that, are, that are defined in a, um, as, as, as an enumeration type. And so uh, when, when a packet shows up that the kernel module doesn't know what to do or that another data path doesn't know what to do with, when that shows up, it, it sends it to the OBS user space and it attaches to that, um, here's the list of the fields and the protocols that, uh, that, that I support and that I extracted from this packet. And then user space, uh, it, it kind of does the same thing because it also has a fixed set of fields and protocols that it supports. Now, the funny thing here is that we, we did this twice, and the results might actually be different uh, because we have we have forward and backward compatibility support. Um, you can run a vSwitchD uh, from say OVS 2.11 uh, against a uh, a kernel module that was originally intended for OVS 2.0, and so obviously 2.11 knows about a lot of fields that 2.0 didn't. So um, if, if you're using something uh, that, that, that wasn't there, then uh, the, the kernel module, it'll, it, it won't list those, those fields uh, that, uh, um, that, that it didn't understand. And user space will see, uh, see that this stuff is missing. So it, it can use this, this sort of difference um, in both directions to, to figure out how do I deal with this, this kernel module that, uh, that, that might, be, uh, might be a different version. Uh, and that, that allows for pretty good compatibility, but it, it's also pretty tricky. That's uh, dealing with that potential for differences. That's the hardest part of, uh, of adding support for a protocol because uh, you, you have to deal with, uh, with, with kernels that know nothing about it. Uh, and the, the way you, you deal with that is essentially by saying, um, if a packet shows up that the kernel module doesn't know enough about, then take uh, take all the packets of that type and and send them to me in user space, and then uh, user space uh, will will handle them individually, sort of one by one, and and that's really slow, uh, but it but it, it gives you correctness, um, so you don't really want to uh, run uh, two differing versions, uh, but but if you have to, uh, you can, and uh, when when the bits that differ show up. Uh, it'll be slow, but it'll be correct. Uh, so, if and that's sort of the, the root of the problem here. Um, uh, if uh, if we could ensure that these things got updated quickly, that might make the problem a little easier. But uh, besides a technical problem here, we've got a political one. Uh, the, the OVS developers are not really in charge of that, that Linux kernel module. Um, we, we can send patches, 
Um, but it's, uh, it's Dave Miller uh, from the Linux kernel networking uh, team uh, who's, who's really in charge of it. Although, uh, I mean, I guess Linus could veto it, but I've, that, that happens once in a blue moon. Uh, so uh, basically, we need, we need approval, uh, in a sense, to, to update things. And suppose we get that update through. Uh, the Linux kernel uh, releases four times a year, maybe? Uh, so it, there could be like a three-month delay there. Um, and then uh, to get that into uh, um, a Linux distribution, that, that could take um, up to a few years, especially if you're using one of these long-term support kernels. Um, I think Ubuntu and Red Hat support, uh, support their distros, support their kernels for, uh, uh, for, for, for five years or, or, or possibly longer. Yeah. Um, and and then uh, your your enterprise customers uh, who are a lot of VMware's customers uh, they uh, some sometimes they they don't even keep up up with the LTSs so you're uh, you might end up supporting something that's uh, that's a real antique. It's, like it's always the same, right? Yeah. It's like the, 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 that has to cope with Internet Explorer suits. So <laughs> exactly. Like yeah. So. This version compatibility is the, the real root of the difficulty of, of adding new protocols and making, it, uh, uh, and, and making it possible to add P4 support because, you know, for, P, for P4 support, none of this fixed function sort of thing is going to work. We're going to need a new approach. So um, there's, there's a couple of approaches uh, that, that we've looked at. Um, one is eBPF. How many of you have heard of eBPF? Yeah, okay, so most of you. Well, uh, for, uh, for everyone, why don't I just give a, a real quick uh, a summary. So uh, BPF is something that, that uh, goes back to uh, roughly the beginning of the Linux uh, kernel networking stack. It, it actually uh, originated in, in BSD and then it was uh, ported over uh, to, uh, to Linux. So uh, BPF is a simple virtual machine, a virtual machine in the sense of something like the Java virtual machine or a language virtual machine. It, it's bytecode uh, that, that executes on a, a simple register-based uh, uh, machine. Uh, so if you wanted to, you could write a program to balance your checkbook in eBPF. Um, you probably wouldn't want to. Uh, there's, there's no particular reason to do that. But the, the reason that you do want to use eBPF is that uh, you can load it into, uh, into the Linux kernel and have it execute when certain events fire. The, the classic use uh, that goes back to the beginning of the Linux kernel networking stack is for packet filtering. If you run TCP dump uh, and you say something like, you know, port 80, TCP dump port 80, then that generates a little BPF program that just matches packets that, uh, that have port 80 um, and, and filters those. Uh, so, uh, Recently, in the last couple of years, eBPF has been extended enough uh, that you can use it for general purpose programs in Linux. So the, uh, the idea is, uh, what, if we, uh, what if we took eBPF and applied it to Open vSwitch? There's a couple ways we could do that. So um, one way would be um, write, write an eBPF program that executes uh, on, on like an OpenFlow action or an Open vSwitch action. Sure, um, then that could do flexible stuff. Um, but, but taking it farther, um, we could throw away our existing Linux kernel module 
and just write a new one in eBPF. The, the really powerful thing about that, if we could do that, uh, is that that eBPF module uh, could, could deal with whatever fields we actually cared about. So we could take our, our, P4, our P4 program, compile it, compile it into eBPF, and at runtime, uh, select what, uh, uh, what fields we care about. That would be really cool. Um, and uh, we, we have some folks at, at VMware who, uh, who experimented with this. And it works. It's, it's, it's actually really cool. Um, uh, there's a couple problems, though. Uh, so, uh, and uh, some, of these are, um, some of these are technical problems, but, but actually mostly uh, they're, uh, they're, they're political problems again. So uh, the, the, the technical problems are that uh, currently this is too slow. Um, that uh, um, eBPF has all these restrictions on it, like uh, um, you can't do loops. Um, uh, you, uh, um, you're, you're really limited in the number of instructions you can execute. Um, there, there's all these instructions that are there, or all these restrictions that are there for good reason, uh, because uh, it, uh, eBPF programs, they have to be guaranteed to terminate. Um, they have to be guaranteed not to access memory or other resources they don't have rights to. And, and so there's this verifier that your eBPF code goes through. Uh, the verifier is kind of stupid. Uh, so uh, it, will, uh, it, it, makes it, it makes it hard to write uh, fairly large, clever programs. And OpenVSwitch needs, uh, by eBPF standards, a fairly large, complex uh, program. Uh, I, I suspect that if we come back in like two years and we're sitting here, um, a lot of those restrictions will have been fixed because there's a bunch of smart people, uh, academics and otherwise, um, who've been writing better verifiers. So I think that, that problem might get solved in time, and I'm, I'm really excited about that, actually. Um, yeah? But knowing whether something terminates is a really, really hard problem, but we probably cannot even solve with verifiers if you have loops. Well, everybody's already um, accustomed to writing eBPF programs in, uh, in ways that it's fairly easy to prove they terminate. Uh, but you want a more general language, right? Well, P4 doesn't have loops yet, and then so if you're generating eBPF from P4 programs. Yeah. Um, so that, that isn't the main restriction uh, for OpenVSwitch. The, the main restriction is, is actually the, uh, the, the, very, the fairly small fixed limit on the number of instructions you can execute. Most of the time, OVS doesn't go over those, but, but then you get somebody with, for example, um, a complex flow table that's, that's hard to evaluate, or, or maybe even they have a bunch of output actions. Um, if you have a dozen output actions so that you're outputting something to a dozen ports, that is currently kind of hard in, uh, in uh, eBPF. So uh, D4, so if OVS was, was um, I don't want to say uh, specific to P4, but if it was just made to just support P4, mm -hmm. would that then make a simpler implementation that would? Uh, you know, you know, it might. Um, I was saying before that uh, that for software switches, you don't really need those restrictions on the tables, but those restrictions on the tables are are ones that um, probably would make it easier to integrate into uh, eBPF. So uh, it would be a pretty artificial restriction, but if you put in that restriction, yeah, maybe it'd be easier. Um, you said it was slower. Is that because of these restrictions? You have to so, number backwards. 
sometimes the, the speed is due to the restrictions. Um, sometimes the speed is uh, due, uh, due to uh, the, e e the, the eBPF translation. It, it's not a perfect match for your target architecture. So there, there's a bit of a penalty there. Uh, sometimes it's due to the extra safety checking. Um, it, it does more memory checking than you would need um, if, if you trusted the code. Uh, I'm, I'm not the, the main uh, developer of, of this experiment. I'd probably have to ask them if they had other. It would just uh, surprise me that it was slow. Yeah. Um, so the, the kernel module is kind of slow to begin with. Um, if, if you want speed, you want to use DPDK. Um, but, and, and so the fact that the eBPF module is slow is not startling, but it's not nice that it's even slower than the, the, the regular Linux kernel module. No, nobody really wants to say, you know, um, that they're giving up 30% of the performance for, for anything, really. One last question. If it's slower, then what is the advantage of eBPF? Oh, yeah. So the, the, advantage, the advantage of eBPF is you can easily tailor it to whatever uh, protocols you care about. And the second one is that since, uh, since, it's, since it's safe, um, uh, since it has these restrictions, um, your, your suppliers uh, will, will be okay with you uh, loading it into your system, uh, whatever custom stuff you want, uh, without uh, telling you that you know your warranty is void or whatever. They they, they won't support it. That's that's one of the reasons uh, that uh, we we don't like to tell people. Um, okay, to support these protocols, compile a custom kernel module and load it. Um, if you tell that to somebody who's running an enterprise, they'll ask Red Hat, "Is this okay?" And, and Red Hat will say, uh, "We're we're not sure about that." Um, uh, pretty reasonably, yeah. um, because uh, that custom kernel module—I don't know—maybe it accesses wild pointers and corrupts your disk or whatever. Um, but uh, eBPF is safe, so they don't have to worry about that. Oh, and then the other advantage is that um, if if we're always running a eBPF module that's uh, that's an exact match for user space, we don't have to worry about all this compatibility problem that I was talking about before, where user space and the kernel might be talking different things. So we can immediately throw out that code. And, and that's, that's a huge advantage, in, in my opinion. It makes it easier for developers. And it, it definitely makes me uh, more confident um, as, as somebody who has to support this stuff. Uh, so it's, it's, but it's, it's too slow, and it's too restricted. And uh, the other issue uh, for, for now is that uh, eBPF that's powerful enough to support this stuff is only in the latest kernels. So, you know, like five years down the road, um, the verifier will be better, um, and it'll be uh, much more uh, pervasively available so that if I go to an enterprise customer and say, hey, can you load this eBPF stuff, they won't say, what eBPF stuff? Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. So that, that's one route uh, to getting more flexible protocols. I have a question. I have some small experience with the eBPF. Yeah. Students have more experience than me. What was very difficult to do for us is to debug the BPF program. Because you cannot, since it's already a kernel model, you cannot debug it as a standard. Even if you write in your small application, and you want to, not to verify as with the verify, but to check functionality, you don't have debug. Yeah, I've heard a lot of complaints from, from William and Yihang, uh, who, uh, who were building this about that too. I think it must be worse when you're building big eBPF programs than when you're doing little ones. eBPF, uh, in most 
most use cases is only used for really simple things like uh, collecting statistics and and things like that. Um, we're we're kind of uh, we're, we're kind of a, a more intensive, bigger user than than yeah. the others. Okay, so eBPF is one route uh, to uh, uh, to uh, how how can we make it easier to get like P4 OVS or uh, protocol configurable OVS. So here's the other uh, um, here's the other route. Uh, suppose instead of eBPF, we we give up on this idea of having a complex user uh, a complex uh, kernel module at all. Um, what if we just use a packet interface? So um, suppose that we didn't need any Linux kernel support at all, and we could just throw away that support. Um, if, if you look at DPDK, um, if, if we just had DPDK, uh, that would be great uh, because uh, DPDK, uh, the support for that is compiled right into OVS. So there's never any version compatibility uh, issues because they're always built into the same binary. They're always, they're always linked. They can assume that they've got the same uh, um, packet formats and ideas about flows. And in fact, uh, we could delete a lot of code from OVS if we could make that assumption because currently that, that uh, data path interface I've been talking about, that, that is actually there in a sort of vestigial form even in DPDK, uh, in the DPDK data path. Um, when, when packets pass between the data path and user space, we're actually converting it into this, this weird format with the um, with the um, potential version compatibility uh, support that I was talking about, and then we convert it right back. And undoubtedly, that that's wasting a bunch of CPU time and memory. That uh, that if if we could uh, delete uh, the kernel data path, all that would just go away, and OVS would potentially be faster and definitely easier to understand the code. So I'm really enthusiastic about that. Uh, the, uh, the the problem is. Uh, that uh, we don't have a fast um, user kernel interface uh, for, uh, for systems where DPDK just isn't an option. However, uh, there's, this, uh, there's this nifty thing that's arisen in the last year or so called um, AFXDP, or that's AF underscore XDP. And uh, XDP stands for Accelerated Data Path? Something like that. Uh, you know, it's got an X in it, so it, it's got to be cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> Looks like uh, Gianni uh, knows all about it. Uh, you can think of, for our purposes, XDP uh, as, as being uh, a, a fast way to get packets to user space. Uh, it, it's actually related to eBPF, too. Um, so uh, eBPF, in some cases, Folks need a, a fast way to get get packets, basically exception packets, uh, to user space or, or monitoring packets. So they, they came up with this this new uh, interface that it's kind of a, an evolution of AF packet. Uh, and uh, in AFXDP, uh, you have a, a a region of shared memory that that's mapped into the kernel, mapped into user space. Uh, they, there's a, a ring buffer. Uh, it's uh, it's it's got all these really good properties for us. Um, it's easy for us to support. Um, uh, William, uh, my, my colleague, uh, wrote a, a, a driver for it in OVS uh, in a couple of weeks that, that performs um, almost as well as DPDK. Uh, and, that, and that's comparing it to these DPDK drivers that uh, people have spent you know, uh, like years optimizing. So uh, even after a couple of weeks, it's pretty darn fast. Um, 
and uh, it, it has some real advantages over DPDK in, in a lot of ways. With DPDK, you need a separate driver for whatever card you've got uh, that, that somebody has to write. Uh, with AFXDP, you can reuse the kernel drivers. Um, with DPDK, uh, if you need support for things like, like tunneling uh, and, and, and so on, and, and a TCP IP stack, uh, you have to write your own. Uh, which is a pain. We've, we've done it for a lot of stuff because we, we care about uh, DPDK. Uh, but it would be even better if we could just reuse the kernel implementations. With AFXDP, with uh, a little bit of cleverness, you can sort of have a, a switch in the kernel where uh, when a packet comes in, you can look at it and figure out, oh, do I want to send this to the kernel stack or do I want to send this to user space? So uh, we, we have the potential to reuse a lot of kernel code uh, for important things, so that you can use things like like ifconfig and, and IP and route uh, um, uh, with, uh, uh, with with OVS instead of with OVS DPDK, you have to uh, build a, a new interface for that. Um, so it, it's actually uh, the only disadvantage so far that I know about with AFXDP uh, is that uh, like. Like all this stuff, it's sort of years away from, uh, from enterprise customers. And so that means that even if we add support for it, and my guess is that we will, we, we won't be able to drop support for, uh, for the, the, the kernel uh, module for a long time. And only when we drop support for that kernel module can we really get the big advantage of, of being able to, to uh, drop this, what I think of as legacy, uh, um, compatibility support. That's most of the, the message I wanted to uh, uh, give today. I, I hope somebody here has a brilliant idea so that uh, um, I, I, I can uh, um, more, more quickly uh, get away from, uh, <laughs> from supporting legacy. <laughs> you, you, you guys, uh, that, that's your job to come up with brilliant ideas, right? <laughs> um, and uh, there, there are other, uh, there are other OVS stuff that I, uh, I, I can talk about, uh, but that, that was my, my main message. Uh. I have maybe a silly question. Uh, so I understand that you know the problem of you know supporting OVS with multiple functions and you know putting like a P4 in OVS. The problem is that backward compatibility, and so I and I understand that having backward compatibility is a good thing. Yeah, but is it such a good thing at this cost? I mean, the world is this sort of you know you, you see what I mean? Like it's a good question. I I kind of wish that I had the the resources to just fork OVS and say that uh, um, that. You know, one of these forks is the uh, compat one, where we're, we're going to make sure it works for the next five years until everybody upgrades. Um, but we're not going to add a lot of features. And then the other fork is the one where we drop all the kernel module support and we start adding all the cool stuff. That that would be great. I guess there's a different question hiding there, and that is, how can you actually develop a module now that you can continuously upgrade, so that you may have to live with the system as it is for the moment, mm -hmm. but how to actually really kind of um, get this upgradability later on. I guess that's one of the kinds of things that comes to my mind here. That's, that's one way to, to look at it. How can we prepare now? 
how can we prepare now that we are not in the same situation five years down the road? Right. So the I guess from my point of view, the if if we can get to a point where uh, where we just have a packet interface on all the targets, then it solves a lot of problems. The I guess the the place where it might cause a little bit of a problem is that the current data path is is that that interface that that's very flow based that that's very fixed. That's Pretty good for some of the vendors who have uh, who have offloads. Um, th that that uh, that that place uh, where everything is sort of a, a we call them data path flows. Um, that that's where a lot of these these vendors hook in and they take this data path flow and they they look and say, hey, can my can my hardware uh, offload this flow? Um, and they if it can, then they send it off to the hardware and it it magically makes stuff faster. Um, that that probably becomes a little harder with a purely packet-based interface. Um, I, I I think the thing to do there would probably be to just brainstorm with uh, with some folks from uh, from Netronome and Mellanox and Broadcom and so on. Um, I, I've learned that uh, I've learned that they're uh, that they're really helpful. Um, uh, vendors vendors in some ways have bad reputations, but. I've had great experiences working with uh, working with some of them, and and actually uh, it was it was, I I I was amazed uh, last year sometime when uh, we needed uh, we needed a card from vendor A, and uh, uh, we went uh, for some reason we were talking to vendor B about it, and they said, oh we've got one, and handed us one, so yeah, it's yeah. like wow. <laughs> yeah. Suppose that you want uh, at the end to move to the before. Uh, uh, support. So, do you think that it is better to throw the legacy code and uh, implement also the standard IPv6 uh, TCP application using the P4, or it is better to have, let's say, the standard path and the P4 path for something that is not standard? And the question is, I believe that there was a lot of uh, implementation. Uh, and also architectural uh, techniques that allow us to make IPv4 faster, very, very fast. Mm -hmm. Generic IPv4 cannot be so fast. So do you think that it's better to maintain this uh, since we know that uh, it will be faster? Or, uh, but you need to have, let's say, both the, uh, the structure, the, 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 the optimized one and the, yeah. the general one, or it is better to focus only on the general one, even if... Uh, Probably you don't take this uh, implementation gate if you believe that there is an implementation gate standard IP4, uh, IP4, IPv4, IPv6, for stuff. So I have a couple thoughts. So uh, first of all, I don't think specialized implementations are going away. Um, I, I, I think they will always be there, and they, they probably should be there because, to to some extent, they uh, they represent a, a best case that uh, that we'll probably always be comparing against. Um, on the other hand, uh, I, I, I feel like general purpose implementations can actually beat specialized ones in some cases. Um, and and let, me, let me explain. So if, if you look at, uh, at, at OVS, it can do optimizations that, uh, that, some optimizations that are very difficult for specialized implementations of anything because 
it, it, it's able to, to take many decisions and through, it, through its caching technique, collapse them into a, a single decision. So uh, I've, I've seen, in, in special cases, I, I, I've seen where OVS is actually performing better than some specialized implementation of, for example, something that does uh, the, the case that we usually care about at VMware is network virtualization where you're, you're doing something like switching followed by routing followed by switching, um, maybe, with, maybe with tunneling in the middle. So um, when you translate this into open flow tables, you might have a dozen tables, you might have 20 tables, um, and, uh, and OVS can usually take all those 20 and collapse them down into just one, one hash table lookup or a few hash table lookups. Uh, Whereas um, sort of the discrete code that, that does this, it generally um, has to do all these steps on every packet. Uh, and uh, even though those individual bits of it may be very well optimized, the fact that you're still doing all of them, that, that in some cases that can be slower than the, the general purpose code in OVS. Um, so while I think it's very common that specialized code will win, it, it, it doesn't always. Uh, did that make sense? Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I have a comment is, and I don't know, maybe it's just something that comes into my mind. Following up on the um, the interface that you were discussing, that you know, Anya suggested, like you know, yeah. the thinking probably these would become more prominent in a context uh, where Intel is uh, shipping, or at least has the idea of shipping also FPGA with a, with a chip, with a CPU. And they're probably, in the future, I don't know where OVS as a project will go, but in the future you might want to consider in the separation of a data path and a control path of OVS, maybe offloading something to the FPGA as some other vendor just already doing for the smart NIC, but in the context there is, will be more tightly coupled with the, with the CPU itself. So there would be like probably the right time also to rethink the, the, the type of uh, <coughs> interface that you might have, uh -huh. you might want to have, I don't know. One of, one of my favorite uh, ideas for offloading OVS, and, I, I don't, and we did this as an experiment, I, I don't think it's ever been made into production, is to offload just the classification step. There's, uh, there, there's some clever ways where you can um, offload the, the classification or even just part of the classification, and then software can check it quickly. Um, that's the most, when, so when a packet comes into OVS, there's sort of uh, three stages. One, you extract the headers, Two, you look it up in the data path flow table. Three, you execute the actions. Um, step, the, the expensive one is the, uh, the, the lookup step. Um, executing the actions is, is usually easy. Um, that, that's cheap. Uh, sometimes extracting the headers can be expensive too. Um, but um, the, the hard part is, is the lookup. Um, and if we, can, uh, if we can offload that or partially offload that to hardware, it would, uh, um, it would, it would make OVS much faster. I think we wrote about uh, this in the, the Softflow paper. Uh, there's, a, uh, it, it, there's a very short section in the, um, in the evaluation section on a, a partial offload technique that we, we prototyped. But I guess when you're starting thinking about offload, it's like 
depending on the type of operation you decide to offload as a sort of a chain effect on the others in the yes. sense that if you want to do classification that means the parsing needs to be still done in the hardware otherwise i don't know well so it depends well that's what i was talking about with with partial um offload our, our hardware uh, could only parse basically the five tuple but our flows uh, were more specific than that. Um, okay, maybe I'm thinking much more with F FPGA. <laughs> you know, like, so, you know, if, you know, for me, it's like okay, you're followed with a in a hardware. You just tell me, okay, parse, and you know, oh, I, yeah. I, I'm gonna write from scratch the the, the code for if, you know that's. If you can get it in an FPGA, then you yeah. probably have a lot of flexibility. We we were using off-the-shelf NICs that just had a they had a small firmware modification where. Um, I instead of uh, instead of doing something based on flow director output, they they just emitted the sort of the verdict. The, Those the are half a smart nick. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was a it was a half smart nick. That's yeah. probably a, a, a good way to put it. All right, I'm I'm gonna just turn off the recorder now um, because uh, uh, m mostly because it, it makes me talk differently and think differently. <laughs> <laughs> I've had, a, I've had enough of that for, uh, for today. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org. Or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.